This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. The episodes in this feed were originally published on Crawlspace. Please use caution while listening and follow Crawlspace Podcast for more. Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance in the Empty Frames Studios. What's up, Lance? Doing pretty well. It's uh, cozy here in the uh, Crawl Space Studios, nestled, warm town. And uh, so for this interview, we're talking to our buddy Mike Morford of the Criminology Podcast and TrueCrimeGuy.com. Always a treat to talk to him. He's great. He's got a lot of information about the Zodiac and the East Area Rapist, which was the original Night Stalker. Which is now the Golden State Killer. Which is now the Golden State Killer. And he just uh, he's just a, a cool guy to talk to. Uh, you can seriously have a conversation with him for hours and not realize how much time has gone by. And he's going to be at CrimeCon. We talk about that a little bit. So uh, check out CrimeCon 2018 in Nashville. Links in the show notes. Also, before we play the interview, just wanted to mention this is your last chance to come to our live show this Sunday, March 25th, in Davis Square, Somerville, a suburb of Boston. We are talking to world-renowned psychic and witch, Lori Bruno. Hereditary High Priestess from Salem, Massachusetts, and that is the Rockwell Theater in Davis Square, Somerville, Massachusetts. Tickets are uh, on sale, and the link is in the show notes. And um, get it, get them fast because this is an intimate setting, and uh, they're running out. And just in case you aren't really sure about this, you're like, oh, psychics, I don't know about this, you guys. Here's a previously unheard clip of one of our visits to Lori Bruno in Salem, Massachusetts, to talk about the disappearance of Maura Murray. Here's a clip of Lori talking about the A-Frame house. Whose house is that? Um, I think Claude Moulton was living there at the time. Now nobody's in there. Um, it just got sold to some locals from the area. I don't like this house. I got Taylor's. Yeah. It's a bad house. Very bad. There's no basement on it? I don't think so. Just flat in the ground on a slab? Yeah, I think so. It's a bad house. I don't like it. Do you have Mora's energy there or other? You have to go up a long road to get to this house? Yeah, it's it's uh, half a mile from the accident site, yeah. It's a half mile from the the highway. Um, a little further from that highway, but from where she went missing, yeah, about a half mile. I don't like that house. Mm. Very spooky. I got a creepy feeling from it. Yeah. Moulton and his brother. Yeah, uh, his brother didn't live there, but uh, his brother uh, believed that he might have been up to no good. He is up to no good who lived in that house. Yeah. 
They never went through that house, did they? Checked it for any DNA or anything, huh? Okay, there's there's that, Lance. I, I mean, maybe you can't get get convinced from one clip, but she's talking about the potential of DNA being in the house over a year before the Oxygen TV show actually found some DNA in that house. So she couldn't have known that. Also, the house being on a concrete slab, I guess you could look at a at a picture of the house and, and just know that there was no basement, but... I. I didn't know that. You could hear me in there saying, I don't know if it has a basement, but she knows that it's on a slab. And we never said that we thought that we would be able to convince anybody. If if you go to this show or, you know, even if you visit Lori or any psychic on your own, but if you go to this show and and you, you see uh, and you hear the conversation that we have with her, we're not looking to convince anybody. You know, we're, we don't, I myself am a skeptic when it comes to this, but I do understand that there's a certain um, intuition that Lori Bruno and other psychics, but I'm more familiar with Lori, uh, that they tap into. She especially taps into it. And just reviewing the, the, the footage that was done like two years ago, this was a trip that was taken two years ago. Just reviewing the footage is amazing and again i'm a i'm a skeptic but we started hearing things that we didn't know in 2016 when this was when this was performed right but we know now mm-hmm. which is which is crazy she was right about the a-frame house there was dna found in that uh a little more than a year later lance so that's remarkable none of us had any idea that was going to happen yep and and she's and she doesn't like she doesn't like just stammer her words she just you know she says uh, basement and you know the house is on a slab and there's no basement like she already has the picture in her head so check it out links for tickets in the show notes and here is the interview with Mike Morford check out criminology season two about the Golden State Killer. Morph, welcome to Crawl Space. How are you today? I'm doing good. Appreciate you guys having me on. We appreciate you coming on and the work that you're doing here with the uh, the East Area Rapist case, which you've been working on for how long now? I've been working on that for a little bit, I, a little bit over two years. Um, I started it back in uh, 2016, so it's, it's coming up on two years right now. Very good. Did you start looking into it when the case was reopened? It was it was actually the spring of 2016. Uh, Michelle McNamara, whose book is out and is, is really getting a lot of attention, she had asked me to, you know, look into the case and see if I had any interest in it because I had done a lot of work on the Zodiac case, and she thought some of the stuff I did could be put to use in, in the East Area Rapist case, but. At the time, I, I was just, I had a lot on my plate and I declined her offer. And then, you know, it wasn't long afterwards, you know, that she passed away. So after, at that point, I sort of felt guilty for not having taken her up on the offer. And I dove headfirst in the case and reached out to law enforcement, told them who I was and, and a little bit about what I've done in the past. And, you know, I had a lot of doors open for me, luckily, and, and I've made some good contacts. So it, it started from there. And then the case was reopened. Was it reopened based on your information? No, it, it was it was never really closed, but they wanted in 2016, it was the 40-year anniversary of the, the ah. first confirmed attack, and they wanted to make a big 
mm. um, a splash to get some media attention and get you know reinvigorate the the leads coming in. A semantics headline. That's what we call that around here. Right. Oh yeah, that's that's sort of what it was. How did you come to meet uh, Michelle McNamara? For those who don't know. I was a, a big fan of true crime for a long time, and I, I scoured the Internet looking for Internet stories of missing people, you know, different cases that sort of, you know, reached out to me. And I came across her website, um, truecrimediary.com, and I started reading some of the articles. I said, well, these are really great articles. This is my kind of, you know, my kind of site because I like the – I tend to – be drawn towards cases that aren't solved and, and sort of forgotten about. And that's what she wrote about. So I sent her an email and I just told her I really liked her site and I really liked the cases that she covered. And then she responded and we just sort of started going back and forth like that. And, you know, at some point she asked me if I would, you know, write an article about a case that I had, you know, covered that she was interested in. Uh, it was a murder case of a girl named Lindy Sue Beachler. And I, you know, was honored to to do that, and she put it on her site, and then we just corresponded after that and stayed in touch. Cool. Was that before or after you launched TrueCrimeGuy.com? I've had True Crime Guy now um, about a year. It's it's actually the site's actually newer. I've been sort of bouncing around to different sites, different forums. You know, I've had Zodiac Killer site for for years, and I'm a member on different web sleuth forums, things like that. Um, but the the true crime guy was just sort of where I could write about my own cases as I, as I wanted to, you know, a lot of the, the bloggers out there are hardcore every day. I sort of do it as I have time or as I hear about a case that interests me. That's sort of when I put new articles on there. You've had true crime guy, the website for like a year. Cause it feels like you've been around for like 20 years. I don't know what it well, is about you, but it feels like, <laughs> it feels like every time I look at something you've done, I feel, I feel, I feel so behind the eight ball on it because it's so thoroughly researched and so in depth. And it's like, I, you said a year and I was thinking, no, oh, you well, that's yeah. good branding on the name of the website, I would say. And, and right. like your, your nickname as a moniker, but I, but I take it that you've had that nickname for longer than just a year. I, I actually didn't. Uh, you know, I sort of go by Morph on, on everything I do. On every, You know, my username is usually Morph13 on, on all the different web forums I'm on and stuff. Um, and I just wanted something that was sort of a cool name that people could easily remember and, and was related to the to the genre. So, you know, I just happened to put True Crime Guy out there and it was available. I was surprised. It sounded pretty cool. So I, I took it. Um, so it's sort of been a, a good brand. Yeah, well done. I'm currently hacking into your Twitter with password <laughs> morph13. <laughs> yeah, change that was my old password. I switched it up. <laughs> change yeah, it quick. Change it before this episode drops. <laughs> um, so you mentioned your your history. Um, well, like what what have you done before? I know you were you had done Zodiac Killer site, but uh, what else? And what brought you to become obsessed with true crime? You know, I had done a lot of, you know, on Web Sleuths, that's one of the most popular on, online forums. I've, I've done a lot of looking into cases, a lot of them on the East Coast, um, you know, Penn State murders, uh, you know, Lindy Sue Beach, who I mentioned before, uh, a case that not a lot of people know about. Um, you know, there's a murder of a Penn State student named uh, Betsy Ardsma I looked into, and another one. That was Dana Bailey. She was murdered. And that's sort of in my area. I'm on the East Coast, but everything seems to happen out in California, you know, a lot of times. And, and I am drawn to cases out there frequently, too. You know, some of the 60s and 70s type cases, 80s, 
that don't get a lot of attention nowadays, and those are sort of the ones that I'm drawn to. Your your podcast is Criminology. It's fantastic, uh, by the Thanks. way. It's really, really well produced. It's really compelling. Uh, we checked out episode one of season two today, and uh, season one was on Zodiac, which is fascinating, uh, obviously fascinating case, something you've worked on for a long time. And we also wanted to say congrats on the book, the uh, upcoming Zodiac book. I know. In the first, like, ten minutes of uh, episode one of season two, there's so much that you drop on everybody. Yeah, what is going on with this book? Tell people about that. Yeah, so what we did was we, you know, obviously the podcast was done and, and behind us, and we said, how can we put that out to a new new audience? And I sort of, you know, was a fan of Wild Blue Press because they wrote a lot of true crime stuff. They published a lot of true crime stuff. And I reached out to them. I said, would you guys have any interest in a Zodiac book? And, you know, they knew who I was and they jumped right out and said, oh, absolutely. So we started talking about it and we, we said, you know, we'll convert the podcast just as it is over to book format and put some new material in there and then put photographs in there, things like that, that you can't get on a podcast, obviously. And that's that's sort of how it came to be. That's really exciting. That's really cool. Yeah, congrats. Congrats. congratulations. Yeah, and all thanks. your thanks. hard I'm work. To, I'm waiting to see a, a Maura Murray one come out from you guys. That's got to be in the works. <laughs> oh, well, Say you... that a little louder. Yeah. <laughs> and more often. And on Twitter. Maura and... Murray. <laughs> yeah. So how long had you worked on the Zodiac case? Like how many years of your work were put into this season one of this podcast and this book? Well, I had worked on the case over 10 years, and I had a lot of different material, police reports, you know, things from law enforcement that I had gotten. And I figured what better way than to use that stuff to put a season together based on that. And that's sort of what I did. I went back through all the reports, went through, through the whole timeline and sort of constructed it from there and wrote out the, the episodes. And, you know, my, my co-host, Mike Ferguson, was on board right away. He loves the Zodiac case, so... That's how it started, you know, pretty much that way. And by the end of the season, I I think I we put everything out there that I had in the arsenal and um, just laid out the case. And, you know, we, we were happy with the way it turned out. Now, obviously, starting out podcasting, we're, we're sort of a storytelling podcast. And you're you're sort of going along telling the story. And when it first started, and, and I'm very self-conscious about my voice when I'm talking – but I thought it was horrible. And, and some people said, oh, he's too monotone. He's too – it's hard to read, like, scripted material and do it in a way that sounds, you know, like you're having a conversation. That's why actors um, get paid the big bucks. <laughs> <laughs> but as, as as time went on, it's it got a little easier. You know, I still get a comment here and there that I'm sort of rigid and, and stuff when I'm talking. It's not like what we're doing now, having a regular conversation. It's a, it's a little bit more difficult for me, so – you know, growing pains, I guess, as far as the uh, the podcast part's going. But yeah. the material itself is, is, is good, I think. So that's, you know, hopefully people will overlook some of that stuff and, and look at the material itself. You can't make everyone happy with that stuff anyway. You know, you, right. you, you make, you make you know, you find a few emails who say that. You find 10 saying the exact opposite. I thought you came off great and uh, really, really, like, felt like I got to know you and uh, really like you as a person based on your podcast, and I don't know you personally very well at all, but it feels like I do. Right, and when you're talking about the subject matter and you're, you know, I don't want to have a character. Like, I don't want to have sound effects. I don't want it to sound like a morning zoo, you know? Like, 
the the way you've presented everything, I think, is very appropriate for the subject, for the subject matter. So we didn't want to do it in a way that was sort of, you know, joking. You know, I, I tend to take my true crime stuff pretty serious. It's hard to talk about murders and rapes and things like that and do it in a joking manner. You know, some some people are OK with that. I, I just don't choose to do it. And that's sort of Mike and I had a good fit there because we both approached it the same way and and we take things pretty serious as far as the presentation of the stuff yeah that's cool right because you really have to take that seriously how you present yeah. it and at the same time you don't you want to have a good rapport and the two of you do so because you don't want to yeah. be all doom and gloom you want to make sure that people are still going to listen and not look at you know oh they have a new episode and it's gonna just they know you know it's gonna be another depressing episode without any rapport so you hit yeah. a good balance there mm-hmm. yeah thank you so season two is on the East Area Rapist slash the Golden State Killer slash the original Night Stalker. It's California's biggest serial predator. It's it's I think he's probably the biggest predator in U.S. history. You know, he's a guy that terrorized entire neighborhoods throughout California and um, calling victims, burglarizing homes, and then that eventually turned into rapes, you know, things of that nature. And then it escalated to, you know, to murder. And he went all over the state of California from 1976 to 1986 and left the trail of, you know, at least a dozen murder victims, 50 rape victims, hundreds of home burglaries. Um, and it's when, when you start reading the, the police reports, it's very scary. You just get this feeling of dread and and loathing. You know, you're looking over your shoulder, you're you're, you're locking your doors at night. It's just terrible stuff this guy did and you know hopefully that comes through in the podcast we're doing but um it's just a very dangerous guy and a very scary guy and it's it's the reason why i think there's locks on doors as for people like this um and and when you listen to it or read the stuff you'll want to use those locks because it's it's a very scary uh, individual yeah this is truly the thing of nightmares waking up and having someone invading your space in the middle of the night and just the description of it is again just something that you wake up and you see and you you're probably thinking that you're in the middle of a nightmare yeah it's 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 very scary you're you're sound asleep and there's a guy standing there and in the first couple cases he's standing there naked from the waist down and then he's telling you don't worry i'm only going to take your money (laughs) wait a minute you're not wearing pants you know, what do you mean you're only going to take my money? He, you don't even have uses, pockets. Exactly. Yeah. But he had this script that he used to calm people down. And I, I think after the first, you know, two out of the first three attacks, he, he stopped being nude from the waist down because it's hard to convince somebody you're only there for your money when you're standing there with no clothes on. Um, so he, you know, would tell people, I'm going to take your money. I'm going to leave. You'll be okay if you cooperate. But then it would lead to binding and then rape and then he would stay there. And and typically most rapists want to get in and get out. And, and if they t- take something, they want to get out as fast as possible with what they can carry. This guy, he spent hours in their home with them, walking around, wandering around, going into the refrigerator, taking out food, eating it. Um, almost as if he was the homeowner and he was making the property his. And then he would go back and, and threaten the people that he would kill them. And just terrorize them over and over again, repeatedly raping them, going through their stuff. And then it goes back to even beforehand, before the rapes occurred, he would be in their homes, burglarizing their homes. They would come home, find their house had been broken into, but they didn't see anything missing. 
Here he was going through stuff, looking at their photos, uh, just things that most home and home burglars don't do. Um, so that was sort of his, his MO is that he wasn't really interested in carrying out their stereos and their TVs. He wanted to go in there and, and live in their space. And that's what I think makes it even scarier. Yeah. So it sounded like he was trying to scare everybody. He was trying to dominate these people. He also made harassing phone calls. Can you tell us a yeah, little bit he, about that? Yeah. So he would call victims in advance and he would, usually just breathe into the call. Occasionally people would get calls that, you know, he'd ask for somebody and they'd, they'd say you have the wrong number, things like that. Um, but a lot of times they would be breathing calls and they, or they would just hang up after, after a couple minutes. But what's it's, and it would lead to not just the victim getting these calls, but every one of their neighbors would get these calls, you know, for weeks on end leading up to the attack. So he was targeting entire sections of neighborhoods. That's the scope of, of what this guy did. And there'd be prowling incidents. You know, different neighbors would see prowlers, signs of somebody trying to get in their house. He literally was, you know, terrorizing neighborhoods, not people necessarily. And then however he chose, he would take one of those people there and target them and they would be attacked and raped. And you play a phone call or actually a couple of phone calls in uh, in episode one, and one of them is the voice of this son of a bitch, right? Yeah, it's it's a very scary call. It's one of the most infamous calls about this case that you can find anywhere on YouTube or wherever. Um, but he called um, in January of 1978, I think it was, um, probably about a year and a half, I guess, a, a good ways after the, he had attacked this victim. It was the first confirmed victim of him. Um, and he called her and he basically is hissing into the phone. I'm going to kill you. You know, he's calling her bitch, uh, whore, just different, just different things like that. But then, you know, come to find out he would also around the same times call other victims on the same days and other victims would report getting calls. This, this one just happened to be recorded. So it's, it's one of the famous ones that's out there, but other victims would get calls. And then this would continue for days and weeks after the attacks, even years you know, there's there's one victim that got a call 24 years afterwards. Um, just yeah, he's probably not out still attacking, but he was still calling. He was still getting that thrill of terrorizing him that way, knowing that it would affect them. Uh, and it's it's that scary that this guy was out there that long terrorizing that many people. You think he's still out there? I don't necessarily think he's out there attacking. I think you know the last confirmed attack by him was in 1986, um, and and. What he did was required a lot of physical, you know, strength, um, flexibility. Um, but he wasn't a big guy. Condition. But he, but he, he wasn't. No, not at all. He wasn't a big guy. He was an average guy. He was described as athletic, five foot ten, like he was in good shape, not overweight, not super muscular, um, just an average, average guy. And um, you know, but he was definitely in good physical condition. And what he did required that he be in good physical condition. So. Years later, at 60 years old or 70 years old, however he is now, it's not going to be possible for him to do those things that he did. Um, could he call people still? Uh, it's definitely a possibility. I could see him getting his uh, jollies off by calling people. But as far as the attacks and, and, and showing up in their homes, that part, I think, is pretty much behind him. Do you have any theories on 
identifying who this is uh, or maybe a job that he had? Or are there any avenues that people have gone down and interviewed people? You know, like with the Zodiac case, there's you pretty much have your three or four main uh, suspects and they all seem to make sense um, on some level. Is there anything like that with uh, this guy? There's there's been thousands of suspects looked at in this case. And this case is a little bit different than the Zodiac because a lot of a lot of these Zodiac suspects have been named in books and things like that. So their names are out there. They're well known. Um, in the East Area Rapist case, the names aren't out there. So they're they're sort of behind the you know closed doors, so to speak. But they've ruled out a lot of different guys through DNA, through surveillance. Some of them were locked up at the time of some of these crimes. So they've ruled out thousands of people. The difference between this case and the Zodiac case is they have confirmed DNA of this guy. Um, so they know when they catch him, when they find his DNA someplace, it's going to be him. There's not going to be any question about that. So that's the good thing about the case. The only problem is after four years, they haven't found the guy with the right DNA. Um, and that that's the troubling part. Yeah, that's really troubling. Do you think that this is somebody who, at the end of his life, if he knows that he's dying, will leave a letter saying that he did this? Do you think he would want that credit in the, you know, in the afterlife? I think he might do that. You know, he's definitely like the attention. Um, I don't think he would, you know, if the police showed up at his house today to take DNA, you know, I'm of the opinion he would shoot himself right on the spot. Right. Um, Cause he's the ultimate coward. He's, he's, you know, if you look at his MO and his attacks, he always wore a mask. He never risked having his face seen. He always approached when somebody was their most vulnerable when you're sleeping, shined a light in their eyes, lone women's, to start with, or women with children in the house with no male present. And when he attacked, he would attack with a knife. Now, once he moved on and started attacking men while they were in the house too, he would bring a gun. Um, so he, he was very afraid of, of a confrontation with a man. And then he would also go back and retie them, the men super tight, just to ensure that there was no possibility that he would have to fight them. Um, and, and he actually did in towards some of the later incidents, he did, have run-ins where the men confronted him and, and stood up to him, and uh, he wound up killing them. But they, you know, they had stood up to him and gotten their licks in. Um, so I think he realized towards the end that it might be kind of risky. And as a matter of fact, the last victim, um, Janelle Cruz, that he murdered, was all by herself. So he went back to where he started, attacking a lone female where he could handle her easily. Which tells you again who this guy is. He's He's a coward. He's not strong. He's weak. Um, so whoever he is is going to turn out to be somebody that is, you know, fits that kind of profile that when they go back and look, it'll make sense of, of who he was. If he's caught, what do you hope would happen? If aside, the, you know, assuming he doesn't shoot himself, would you want to have any sort of uh, input or be a part of any type of profiling if you're able to? I, I mean, I myself wouldn't have any interest in talking to that scumbag, but, you know, the FBI profilers, law enforcement, I would love to see them dissect him and see what made him tick and what caused his issues and how he did what he did. Because, you know, I've looked at a lot of cases in a lot of different areas over the years, and this guy is definitely the most ruthless, uh, planning, uh, cunning person i've ever come across and he spent days weeks months surveilling victims um and sticking to a script and if something felt off he he abandoned it 
Um, he had everything calculated. He would sneak into people's houses ahead of time, unlock windows, hide rope under their couch, you know, things like that. And he would come back later on and do his thing. So it's, it's just scary to think the level this guy went through um, to do what he did. And I, I think that police, you know, law enforcement and profiles could learn a lot from this guy. I think so. I think there's a lot there, um, but it's hard to, to really get a full picture until you know who he is. Yeah. You can say a lot, um, you know, about the way he appears, I think, in some of these first few rapes. He's standing there in the doorway and some of them he's tapping a knife on the door. He's naked from the waist down and all the surviving witnesses say that he has a small penis. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, one of the it's, descriptions. It's the, the descriptions were very, uh, for the most part, were very all like each other, you know, thin athletic guy, five foot eight to five foot 10, um, very small penis, you know, that came from just about everybody that, that talked to him. And I mean, I, I and again, I, I don't want to get into talking about penises too much, but <laughs> Uh, you know, apparently a lot of these victims felt it was unusually small. So they they actually went as far as trying to figure out genetic problems or medical conditions, which would, would have caused that, hoping that that could lead to, you know, somebody that had sought treatment for for that kind of thing. Right. Uh, so they really, really went through a, a great lengths to try and look at every kind of clue, even something like that, to, to try and identify this guy. Yeah, so I guess that that's what I was getting at. Like, psychologically speaking, that's probably not a coincidence. He appears to these people with, you know, showing his penis. Like, I don't know. We can I'm move sure, on. Yeah. We no, can move on from penises, but... Well, it's a contributing I also, factor. I also but... want to talk about him talking to himself, right? It sounded like sounded like at one point um, someone reported they, they thought he was talking to someone else in the house, but we don't think he worked with anyone, right? Well, that's, and that's sort of something that's been baited over the years too, because there were instances when people heard him talking or whispering. And then, you know, a lot of times they're blindfolded and they're trying to listen to what he's saying and, and they couldn't tell if there was somebody else there. But on one occasion, they thought somebody knocked on the door. Um, and in another occasion during an attack, they heard a horn blow outside of the house. Um, so there's been some speculation that he may have had an accomplice. Um, one of the voices was described as possibly being a woman's voice. And, um, I think one, one thing of interest was that in one of the later murders, um, the day of the murder there, uh, down in Santa Barbara County, a house that was broken into close to the, the murder victims, um, somebody witnessed a, um, a man and a woman knocking at the door and they described them and, and gave a pretty good description. It's in the reports and that home was burglarized that night. Um, so they think that the man and woman had something to do with it possibly. So if that's the case, he could be working with an accomplice, you know, what that's a female and whether or not she knows he's in there raping people, you know, who knows? Uh, but it's just one of those interesting things that, you know, they might turn out to be something. Maybe it's not. Jesus Christ. That's doesn't that feel like the the way things were uh, amongst the serial killers in the 60s and 70s and 80s. It was just this weird like I feel like none of them operated alone. I mean, you have your Ted Bundys and you know and and the like, but there's, you know, tons of stories of cultish type, you know, cliques and sects and uh, sex and stuff. It's it's weird. I don't know. I just the whole that whole 
time period freaks me out. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of, lot of scary stuff that happened during the 60s and 70s. Not that it doesn't happen today, but um, I, I think back then without technology that we have today, it was probably just a little bit scarier um, to, to be back during that time. Right. You think about him calling his victims and stalking them by way of these prank phone calls and then like 24 years later still doing it. He really didn't have a lot to work on other than his own twisted psyche. He, it wasn't like he was influenced by movies of the day. Maybe he was. But I mean, it just seems like that. That's I think that's what makes it more more creepy to me is that there's there wasn't as much influence to do crazy shit like this. Yeah, I think it definitely shows some kind of you know, mental illness or, or whatever was going on with him. He's definitely not normal. And as a matter of fact, they're working right now. There's some leads that are going back to 1973, 1974, a couple of years before these attacks started. They think he was operating as a burglar, possibly. Right. Um, and, and in the area where these first rapes started, there were dog beatings, dogs getting bludgeoned, um, prowlers seen um, um, around areas on, on rooftops, things like that. Um, and so they're looking at those possibilities to see if, if that could be him. If so, they're hoping that maybe they can find an arrest for an earlier crime just to try and, and, and go that route. So they're really looking at some different avenues to try and find his origin. Jeez, it's, it sounds like a really good textbook um, situation that you can learn from, the, you know, the, from prowling to animal abuse to burglary to now you know escalating to rape um there's probably cases that we don't know of where he went in there and didn't rape somebody just so that you know he f could feel that he could be in somebody's uh, space in their private space and and that person could see him and then he'd, he'd leave you know this textbook ex escalation finally to murder absolutely and there's there's 50 confirmed rapes but um Rape is a very underreported crime. So who knows how many other rape victims never came forward? There could be a lot more rape victims out there. That's that's the really scary part. Right. Mm -hmm. And there was a uh, psychological profile done here that I'm looking at by uh, Leslie D'Ambrosia, and it uh, says that if he was married, he was probably he probably had a submissive spouse who tolerated his sexually deviant behavior. Also says he would appear harmless. So this is a guy who could have been married and like, you know, yeah, could have had a spouse who was just complicit. Yeah, because he was he was out hours, all hours in the night. You know, he was out from, you know, there are instances of him stalking around and, you know, 8 p.m. and then attacking people all the way up till 630 a.m. So he was spending a good portion of his day, you know, 12 hours a day, possibly doing what he did. And. I don't know about you guys, but if my wife caught me out at four in the morning, I better have a good explanation, you know what I mean, to, as to where I'm at. Whereas if this guy had a significant other, she probably wasn't asking too many questions. Um, so that, that could be very true that he had a submissive partner. And, and they also felt that he would use some of his bindings on her um, during sex and that that would be something that she could expect to see in their own relationship, assuming that he had some kind of relationship. Man, that's even creepier to think that if that was the case, then there's somebody out there or they're, you know, assuming she's still alive that, you know, in the back of her head knows that something's screwed up, knows that there's something going on. And I can imagine that there's news accounts at the time and she's, you know, reading these things and thinking that this is pretty similar to the way my, my husband behaves in his, you know, freakish nature in bed. But it was a different time back then, you know, and if you have a submissive person like that. 
probably better to just not say anything. Yeah, well, these yeah, people could I... still be married, still be around today. You know this. You know, but but if this, I mean, you, this is an unanswerable question. But if this guy is a, a, around today and he's not killing people, what what is he doing to occupy that manic state that he finds himself in when he's calling these people and when he's committing these crimes? You know, how has that not gotten him arrested by now? Yeah, that's that's the surprising part to commit that many crimes and never be arrested because that's, I mean, we're talking hundreds of burglaries probably. Um, so just the burglaries alone, you think he would have slipped up at some point and, and gotten caught. Um, so I, I, I tend to think that someplace in his background, there's going to be an arrest for something that they just didn't connect to this, you know, a, a peeping, um, some kind of prowling, um, something along those lines, you know, a, a minor burglary that they just never connect to this case. Um, but I think when they do find that they're going to, they're going to see he had some kind of record along the way. Cause like as skilled as he was and he was skilled um, and he spent a lot of time perfecting what he did um, at some point, luck had to be on his side. And, and when you have good luck, you also have bad luck at some point. So I think that had, had to come and play at some point and he's going to have an arrest someplace back in his records. Right. Um, yeah. But for these crimes, he seems pretty prepared. What kind of job would be? Oh, right. Yeah. Could this guy. Right. Is he an accountant or is he a, a construction man? Yeah. Or something like that. I, I feel like he could be something that, you know, kept him out at night, like um, a taxi driver or something like that. But he would need to be employed, uh, you know, to be physical. So I was thinking like construction worker, but I'm not sure. What's your opinion on that? I think, you know, I definitely don't think he had a nine to five job. You just can't be out 8 p.m. to 6 a.m. all night long and then go to work at nine o'clock. I'm, I'm sorry, you just can't do it. Um, so I, I think if he worked, it was some kind of off shift, you know, maybe, you know, like a, a four to 12 type of shift or something, something along those lines. Um, I've, you know, more recently, I've I've come to the conclusion that maybe he didn't work, that maybe this was his his job was doing this stuff. And, you know, maybe he took occasional work at different points just to make money when he needed to. But I think this was his primary job was doing this. Um, and I think he I think he's got a book someplace or a system someplace or had one if he didn't get rid of it of names, dates, times um, when people left, when they came. Um, and I think he studied it, perfected it and and used it and um you know, it's it's just mind-boggling when you start thinking about that kind of level of um, intent to to carry something out. But that's what he did. So I, th I think that would have interfered with his his normal work ethic if he had a job. And I think whatever job he had was probably a, a menial job, something that he could come and go as he wanted. And one of the things that comes up a lot in this case is construction and real estate, construction development, construct new home construction, um, things like that. There were some painting leads that came up that uh, he may have been a painter or involved in painting. Um, and back then construction was really big in California. It was all over the place, you know, from, you know, one end of California to the other. So he could easily go around to different construction jobs and, and take work if he needed to. So that that's one angle that a lot of people looked at. Ooh, how about like on Dexter, the, uh, the killer who was uh, cutting palm trees Oh yeah, traveled yeah. around to different neighborhoods and cut palm trees. I mean that that has to exist in San, in Sacramento as well. That whole area, that's something where he would yeah. travel around. Yeah, and back then there was a lot of a lot of different day you know labors. You could just 
say, hey, I need to work for three days, and they would just pay you cash, and there wasn't a good record of it, and he could make a quick buck or two and then go back to doing his thing as he needed to. And he knew the area as well that he stalked. So it sort of does fit into the construction or developing uh, or develop, you know, developer, um, painter, uh, day laborer where he can get in for, like you said, two or three days, four days. And during his work time, he's actually side stalking and he's yeah. maybe drawing a map in his head and roofer. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and it, it's definitely possible too. And, and some of these developments were very specific areas where houses were being built or had been built. Um, so he could have learned those locations. I mean, and I, I know a lot of people have looked at every kind of avenue too, from pool constructions to different things like that. Um, every kind of avenue has been explored. You know, a lot of the houses were either for sale or next to houses that were for sale. Um, so that avenue, the real estate has been looked at. You know, a lot of people in the medical field were attacked. You know, they were either they worked for a pharmacy, they worked for um, a hospital, they were in the hospital, they had relatives in the hospital, things like that. So it was, um, you know, the the medical field was another big one that people sort of looked at too. Interesting. Yeah, on your uh, website, the uh, truecrimeguide.com, dot com, you have a a sort of a collage of uh, the composite sketches, some sample handwriting, and then a little map of what looks like a neighborhood. And that's, mm-hmm. and it's from above, you know, it's like an aerial shot of this neighborhood. This is before Google maps. So this, I mean, he's, he knows what he's doing here. He knows the, the, the layout of, do you think this is like a, uh, like an escape route or is it just like a, I don't know, like, so that, that map that you're talking about was actually yeah. dropped at a crime scene, and it looks like a development of a, of a neighborhood. Um, so it's it's possible that he um, either worked for somebody in that kind of line of work, or he studied that map to try and attack somebody. Um, but if that's if the, if he did create that map, then that seems like more than just you know plotting an escape route or who to attack. It seems like there's some kind of expertise or or something involved that it might have to do with some kind of project incredible yeah because unless you're you have like an uh, an overhead that's really tough to create a map like that mm-hmm. that's interesting that so that was dropped oh, are we sure that, that was dropped by him uh yeah they they tracked his scent uh right to that paper it was it was that and uh, um, something called the homework papers it was actually an uh, assignment on general custer um and then there was something uh, that he had written that looks like a something that might be handed out by a counselor, somebody that needs counseling. They hand you some kind of assignment to do to to talk about your issues. And he he talked about his sixth grade year being the worst ever, and the the teacher disappointed him and canceled field trips and things of that nature, just crying and whining about you know this bad sixth grade year he had and how unfair it was to him. Um, and, but the psychosis of him. He's, it's so unfair that the sixth grade teacher was mean to him, but on the other hand, he can go out and bind people and rape them and then kill them, and he doesn't see that, you know, that parallel is, is really frightening um, from his, you know, mental standpoint. Right. That's definitely a uh, a factor of total psychosis. Right. Like mm-hmm. this guy's totally a psychopath, um, and you know wants all the empathy, but needs to do what he's what he's done crazy what i one question that you uh or one um issue or topic that you raise uh 
in uh, in the first episode of season two is that not only do not a lot of people in the country know about this guy, but not a lot of people in California know about this guy. What, what do you think it is about this guy that's different from the Ted Bundy or, you know, the I mean, there was around the same time, even Boston Strangler seemed seemed to be more I don't know, yeah, prevalent in the news. A lot of these cases got national attention, you know. You know, somebody like the Boston Strangler, a lot of these things were just shocking across the nation and and sort of um, got the news coverage. Uh, even Zodiac, Zodiac, you know, he only attacked, you know, killed five people that we know of. So um, but he wrote letters to the press and the press decided to publish them. And that sort of got him famous, um, whereas this guy sort of flew under the radar. He was more interested in not getting famous, but harassing the victims. Um, but the part of the problem was in Sacramento where the attack started, they called him the East era rapist. And then down in Southern California, um, they hadn't linked the crimes to the murders down in Southern California. He was known as the night stalker before Richard Ramirez. Um, and so they started calling him the original night stalker. And then, so he's known as one thing up there, a different name down South, then they combined them and called them Eurons, which is just, you know, Easter Rapist, original Night Stalker, just not very catchy, but that's what they called them. And then it was actually Michelle McNamara that, that coined the phrase um, Golden State Killer to encompass all of the California crimes. And then I think that's what has really stuck. Uh, and over the past two years, I guess, the case has gone from like zero to 60 um, really quick. Um, and that's good to see because, again, it sort of coincides with that 40th anniversary press conference when they decided to shake the case up, put out a reward, and and try and bring the case to a national audience. And, you know, and from people in California not even knowing about this guy to everybody across the country now is starting to hear about this guy. There's, you know, several different TV documentaries, uh, Michelle's book, you know, our podcast, Case File did a really good podcast on it. Um, so there's a lot of attention being cast on this guy right now, and it's good because I think um, if he's out there someplace, it's more likely that somebody somewhere is going to recognize something in, in what they hear and, and come forward with a tip. Yeah. This is great work you're doing here, Mike. Uh, I really uh, think, think this is a great show. What, what else is coming up on the rest of Criminology Season 2? Oh, uh, it's, it's, it, Well, when you get an Episode 2, we have an interview with the fifth, fifth victim, uh, Jane uh, you know, we have interviews with the original investigators. Uh, as soon as I get off with you guys, I'm going to be speaking to a guy that actually chased him uh, as he fleed the scene. And, and uh, unfortunately, he left this guy in the dust. Uh, but then the police um, went after him and took up the chase at that point, And they couldn't catch him either. He somehow slipped through. And then uh, a short time later, that same night, attacked another couple. Um, so... Um, that's somebody I'm going to be talking to today. So I've been really fortunate to reach out and talk to different victims, different uh, witnesses, um, some of the original investigators, current investigators. So we're really, that's one of the advantages of, of having those contacts to be able to talk to them and have them on the podcast. So, you know, we're going to hear from three different victims, I think that were raped by this guy and survived. Um, great. And then we're going to, and then we're going to hear from family members of, of victims that didn't survive. So it's, I think it's when you they can tell their own story as opposed to, you know, me and Mike telling it, you know, we're, we're, we're guys that this didn't happen to. I think it's more compelling to actually hear from the people that lived it and letting them tell their own uh, portion of it. What do you do when people um, come to you with a tip? What's your advice? 
Um, I always try and lead them to, you know, Sacramento's got a, a the sheriff department has a tip line up and a, a link to report tips. The FBI has the tip line. Um, I, I try and direct them to that, but sometimes the people don't want to get involved um, with that. They'd rather give it to me and then I turn around and submit it myself. Um, and, and a lot of times, you know, some of the stuff they give you, you can almost guarantee is not the person, but, you know, I'll usually send it anyways. You know, if they say the guy was six foot four or something like that, you know, I, I can almost immediately say that's not the guy, you know, it just doesn't fit, um, who, what he was physically, but, you know, we'll, we still send them along and then, um, but I definitely encourage people to go through the, the proper channels uh, and, and do it that way. And there's a $50,000 reward in the case. So, you know, hopefully they're turning in people for the right reason, but on top of it, there's, you know, a $50,000 reward if you turn in the actual guy. So that's pretty good. You know, yeah, there yeah. You go. And, the only thing I'm disappointed is for state of California, I think that should be a lot bigger. But, um, again, you know, it is what it is at this point, the victims, you know, deserve justice and answers and stuff. So, um, hopefully whatever reason somebody comes forward with a tip is, is, uh, one that solves the case. Now I just ordered Michelle McNamara's book. I'll be gone in the dark, uh, this morning on in paperback uh, which isn't out yet as of this recording. Um, so I had to pre-order the paperback because I, I would rather read paperback. It's easier to fold and yeah, highlight. just a thing. I yeah. don't know. But I'm going to try to finish it by the time CrimeCon is here. And Billy Jensen is doing a panel at CrimeCon this year about this case and about the book. Now, he finished writing the book. Is that how that happened? Yeah, so when Michelle passed away, um, she had a research assistant, Paul Haynes, um, that was helping her gather information for the book. But Billy's more of a of a writer, I guess, uh, by by trade or whatever. Uh, and you guys, I get think you guys had him on not too long ago, if I remember right. But yeah, um, he sort of has a background with that. Um, so they approached him to who you know she he was friends with Michelle as well. So he made the most sense to approach to to do that. Um, and between him and Paul, they were able to, you know, finish what Michelle hadn't finished. And she was a good way through the book, I think. Um, but she needed to tie up some loose ends and, and, uh, some different things on there. And I think that's what they did. But the, the book is, is amazing. I have the hardcover, hardcover version. And then I also have, uh, the audio book, which for me is perfect because I, I love to like do housework or do whatever I got to do, clean up the garage while I'm listening uh, in the background. So yeah. that, that works best for me, but tremendous book. You should get yourself the paperback copy though. Just add, <laughs> add that to your collection. So you can, yeah, you can uh, thumb through it while you fly out to uh crime con Nashville, Nashville in May in May. So you're going to be a crime con, right? I'm going to be a crime con. Yeah. The, uh, our podcast criminology is going to be on podcast row. Beautiful. Maybe we'll be seated next to you guys. And for, if we're lucky enough, we'll put the request in now. <laughs> Pull some strings for us. <laughs> do you have any? Uh, do you have any any panels uh, scheduled or anything um, that people should be looking into? No panels. I'm, I mean, we're really looking forward to just meeting the um, uh, the fans. But I definitely want to check out the Golden State Killer stuff. Um, that's one thing I'm definitely looking forward to because you know a lot of the victims and stuff that are going to be there are my friends. So. Um, yeah, I definitely want to hear what they have to say. And I have a feeling a lot of our listeners will be in there during that time anyway. So we probably won't have a lot of people coming up to us. But um, oh, I'm will. looking forward to a lot of different stuff. The Colonial Parkway murders with Bill Thomas. Um, and, you know, his sister was murdered. That's a case that's always interested me. 
Um, and I just more or less like to pick people's brains. Like I like to talk to them about the, you know, the true crime genre and just what their experiences are. And that's what I like to do. I sort of like to, to go through and talk to different people and get their backgrounds and, and uh, see what makes them tick and what kind of stuff they work on. You know, I'm, I'm sort of fascinated by that as a true crime junkie myself. So um, I plan on doing a lot of that there. I feel like last year it was uh, way bigger than I expected and Tim expected. It was way crazier in a good way. It just it, from from the jump, it was nonstop and it was just a whirlwind. And I can't imagine what this is going to be like in uh, Nashville this year. And I can't wait to sit down with you and chat with you, whether we just grab some food or whatever or coffee and, and just, uh, yeah, pick each other's brains on this. I mean, at the very least, it's a fascinating social experiment to be there and talk to the people who do this and talk to the people who are attending because it's all sorts of perspectives. Yeah. It's, 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 if somebody hasn't gone there, I'm always recommending people go and they say, Oh, it's so expensive, but it's, if you treat it sort of like a vacation, you know, you're going to spend, you know, money for a hotel and travel anyways to go on a vacation. So if you're a, a true crime nut, then, um, this is sort of a vacation to so spend the money and do it. It's a learning vacation. It it's like the Magic Kingdom and Epcot Center. And yeah, and if you're a music fan, you if you're a true crime music fan, you can go to Nashville, which is a ridiculous music city. Mm-hmm. See some true crime, see some music, and I I, I just uh, looked into the hotel that this is at, and it's crazy this place is crazy cool so it's it's like its own city yeah it's, it's, yeah. it's really cool yeah so it's going to be done right uh this year as it was last year and um again we'll see you there cannot wait to talk to you yeah. in person there because you left a huge impression last time uh last year <laughs> with with um when 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 i first saw you personally with the case and the t-shirt and the t-shirts i I remember first seeing that i think we told you this like i tim and i were uh having breakfast and your people walked by and i was like what is that like those people are making a statement and it was impressive yeah it's 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 crazy and and we we sort of had the idea that you know we wanted people to come up and ask about the case and um collect material and and things like that and it drew it did draw attention but it was it was crazy because when we were up on stage, we did that panel there, and I think we had a few hundred people. It was a pretty decent turnout. But as soon as Jane, you know, spoke and and came off the stage, people just rushed her and were like in tears, crying. I can't believe this happened to you. I, thanks for sharing your story. I'm I'm sitting there just speechless, watching these people, strangers coming up to her, you know, just in tears, and um. It, it, it just shows you that people out there in the, in the true crime community, you know, they're not murder and gore fans like, you know, some people would, would typically think. Um, there are people that care about victims and care about cases being solved and stuff. And I think that's what's really cool. And that's that's what I like about CrimeCon. Good people, those uh, true crime podcast listeners. A person goes missing, their loved ones often find themselves overcome with worry and grief. Bruce Maitland started the 501c3 nonprofit organization Private Investigations for the Missing because he knows this feeling all too well. When Bruce's daughter Brianna disappeared in March 2004, 
he was surrounded by licensed private investigators dedicated to finding her. Now his mission is to provide dedicated private investigators at no cost to other families of the missing, desperate for answers but without the financial means. Private Investigations for the Missing needs your help. To read the mission statement, make a donation, and keep up with our blog, visit us at investigationsforthemissing.org and follow us at PI for the Missing on Twitter and Facebook and Investigations for the Missing on Instagram. Because forever is too long to wait.